This CBF podcast conversation is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry offers a practice-focused theology education. Study online or on campus and learn from Fuller seasoned scholar practitioners and apply what you're learning to your own context. Whatever your ministry goals, Fuller Seminary's MA in Theology and Ministry will help you take the next steps in your vocation. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. That's fuller.edu backslash M-A-T-M degree. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. We are excited, as always, for you to join the conversation with us each week. Each week, we have over 40,000 people touching the podcast with iTunes and SoundCloud and social media and the various dot-coms that the episode is posted. But we will also want to invite you to join the conversation in a new way. We want you to join this CBF podcast listener support project. And you actually get to join me in an upcoming interview. Imagine this year alone, Walter Brueggemann, Philip Yancey, Brian McLaren, Jim Wallace, Margaret Feinbaum, Ruth Haley Barton, and Miroslav Volf. Yeah, imagine yourself joining an interview. So visit cbf.net backslash podcast support. This week's CBF Podcast Conversation is brought to you by CBF Advocacy. CBF Advocacy is excited to announce two advocacy and action opportunities in 2020. Advocacy in Action will be returning to Washington, D.C. on March 9th through the 12th, 2020, after a wonderful event in New York City. CBF's Advocacy's annual event will include popular staples such as participation meetings with congressional offices and opportunities to hear about advocacy efforts with CBF partners in Washington. In 2020, Advocacy in Action will include more experiential opportunities, including a special tour at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Registration for this event will be capped at 60 and opens September the 30th, 2019. Visit cbf.net backslash advocacy and action for more information about housing options, registration, and event details. For the first time ever, CBF's Advocacy is happy to announce a regional Advocacy and Action event in conjunction with CBF Heartland. Advocacy and Action Heartland will be February the 8th through the 10th, 2020 in Jefferson City, Missouri, co-hosted by CBF Heartland, First Baptist Jefferson City, CBF, and Word and Way. 
with a focus on equipping individuals to advocate for their state and local governments and finding alternatives to payday loans, Advocacy and Action Heartland promises to be an event you won't want to miss. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Michael and Lauren Green McAfee. Michael is a teaching pastor at Council Road Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. He also serves as the director of community initiatives for the Museum of the Bible. Lauren is a PhD student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and works at the executive office of Hobby Lobby. Michael and Lauren, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having us. Now, before we get to the book and your work, um, let's get to know you a little better. Lauren, we're going to start with you. Tell us more about you. Sure. Well, I have been born and raised in Oklahoma City and have lived here most of my life. Um, and I, you mentioned that I'm a PhD student, so I'm studying ethics and public policy at Southern Seminary and have really enjoyed uh, getting to continue to learn. I have always enjoyed reading since I was young, and so that's lent towards enjoying education, apparently, because I'm like a perpetual student. So um, still pursuing that while getting to, I've been able to work full-time at Hobby Lobby, um, and I'm currently a project coordinator uh, with the Ministry Investments Office, which has been uh, really fun, but I get to work alongside family, which I enjoy. So um, at Hobby Lobby, uh, a number of my family members work uh, near me, so it's uh, it's a lot of fun to kind of run into uh, cousins and siblings and parents and grandparents and stuff uh, in and around the office. So it's a really unique uh, situation, but it's great fun. And and then just recently became. A parent. So Michael and I just adopted our daughter. We've been in the adoption process for a long time. And uh, I'm a third generation adoptive parent in my family. So um, my grandparents have adopted, my parents adopted my sister, and now Michael and I have just adopted our little girl. So she's a year and a half old, and she's um, super sweet. And we think she's just the best thing ever. That's fantastic. Well, I hope it's okay to to point out the two-ton pink elephant in the room that your grandfather, David Green, was the the founder of Hobby Lobby. So you have a kind of deep connection to the <laughs> yes. company that you work for. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So grandpa's the founder. He still works there full time. So I get to see him around. And uh, my dad is the president of Hobby Lobby now. So it's really neat to get to work around family. Um, and being from the Hobby Lobby family, people often ask me um, if we are really creative and crafty people, because you know we have Hobby Lobby, which is a craft store. <laughs> and so people often ask me, are you like really crafty? I'm like, actually, no, I am like <laughs> the least crafty person. I cannot do a do-it-yourself project if I had to. So um, while I'm not crafty, I enjoy working for a retailer that sells crafts. So <laughs> it's been fun. Yeah. Well, Michael, what about you? Uh, tell us a little bit more about you. Sure. Yeah. Well, um, like, like you, I'm sure. And most of your listeners, I made all of my most important decisions, uh, when I was seven years old. And so, uh, when I was seven, <laughs> I, uh, was baptized. I actually came to faith in Christ, I think when I was six, but I was baptized at seven. So committed to follow Jesus with my life. When I was seven, uh, I also met a cute little redhead girl that came to the church I was attending for the first time and ended up marrying her. And then when I was seven, we had career day in first grade for, you know, dress up like the career you're going to have when you're an adult. 
every other little boy in Miss Georgia's first grade class had on a Troy Aikman jersey or a Michael Jordan jersey saying they were going to be a professional athlete. And I was the nerd in a tie and a suit jacket holding a Bible saying I was going to be a preacher. And so um, that pretty much has set the trajectory of my life. I mean, since then, um, uh, by God's grace, have have walked with the Lord. I have been involved in Christian ministry in some kind, regularly speak and preach at my home church and other churches and college seminary conferences, et cetera. Uh, and then the the love of my life, Lawrence, who, uh, who I get to write this book with, who I get to uh, be involved in PhD studies. Uh, we're in the exact same program, have the same supervisor, Dr. Russell Moore, and uh, just get to have a lot of overlap in our life, which is a lot of fun. And led us as, as I'm working full-time at Museum of the Bible, uh, thinking about uh, how do we reintroduce the Bible, really rebrand the Bible for a new generation. Um, and I say rebrand because the content is perfect. The product doesn't need changing, um, but, uh, but we think that the, there's a way to help change the perspective of the Bible. And, uh, and that's what we were hoping to, to do in the book. So anyway, so that's, that's kind of the aspects of our life. Um, and the most important, of course, being uh, little Zion, who's napping safely right now uh, and soundly, hopefully. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say that. Cause I mean, by saying it, there's a chance she's going to wake <laughs> up now. Yeah. Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Hopefully by editing this out, you know, it won't happen for future naps. But. So, uh, you know, you serve as a, as a teaching pastor. I mean, that's kind of a, a new role, probably something that wasn't around, you know, 20 years ago. So what exactly mm-hmm. does, does that mean for you? Um, Sure. Yeah. So my my I have a unique um, relationship with our senior pastor. He he was actually a on staff at the church where my parents attended in South Carolina, where I was born. And so I've known him literally my entire life. And uh, and he has invested in me, loves me, believes in my preaching ability. So regularly um, he still preaches the majority of Sundays, but puts me in front of our congregation regularly. And then we as well have a, a, a time where each week we go over his sermon or my sermon and kind of prepare. And then as well, I'm tasked with helping to set sort of the preaching calendar and direction, which has been just a blast, a ton of fun. So it's like the best, you know, part-time job, quote unquote, that I've ever had. It's just a, a, a thrill to serve. I'm actually serving at the same church that Lauren and I met at when we were seven. So we've, we've stayed there. We have deep roots there, a lot of, of family and friends. And, um, and yeah, it's just, it's our home. It's our community. I do have to point out that if my wife met me at the age of seven, she would probably be living on the other side of the world right now. I just, I, <laughs> I remind her often, uh, Michael, as we were discussing earlier, like it's a good thing we didn't meet until, you know, the day that we did, because most likely she wouldn't have liked me. So, but, uh, <laughs> well, and, we, Michael and I, ha- you know, did meet technically when we were seven, but someone was just asking me the other day, when was the first time I remember Michael. They're like, do you remember him at seven? I was like, no, I don't really remember Michael until probably middle school. They're like, oh, well, what is, what is his first memory of you? I was like, it was much earlier than that for him, but for me, it was not so later that I noticed him. But we, we kind of became best friends in middle school um, and high school. And one of Michael, like Michael likes to say, one of his biggest accomplishments in life was escaping the friend zone and, and exactly right. dating. 
That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, I shared that off off record beforehand, but you're exactly right. I want the world to know that is my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back uh, just briefly to kind of your role in teaching, um, you know, because the landscape of, of preaching and teaching has changed so much. Um, I would say even over the last five to 10 years. So what are you finding um, is, is the most effective way to connect with people? What particular style of preaching um, you know, what modes of, um, I guess, physical or visual illustrations for people to connect with? Um, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we're, we're in a, a, a disruptive time in our culture in general, let alone our, our church culture, which feels some of the uh, aftershock of that. And so, um, so I, I, from my experience, uh, which is obviously limited, but I, I have found that, especially as I'm talking to other young adults, uh, the ones that are serious about wanting to learn uh, uh, more about their faith, more about like wanting to grow in their walk with the Lord, uh, really are starved for Bible. Like really just have heard, kind of grown up in the uh, youth group culture, oftentimes of, of having, you know, snacks and games with a little Bible study on the side. And I, I believe that much of the, uh, the often maligned departure of the next generation is not because they have uh, tasted Christianity and said, it's not for me and walked away, but actually they've tasted something that doesn't resemble uh, biblical faith. And so uh, a lot of what I, I've committed my life and ministry to is showing them uh, kind of the disenchanted, disengaged millennial or Gen Z is that, hey, that, uh, that church or that faith that you've walked away from, uh, maybe it wasn't that you really had a deep encounter with the Lord and it didn't satisfy. Maybe it was that the so-called encounter you thought you had was actually just with a great program or a fun, you know, retreat or event or, or whatever it is. Or maybe it's because you're disenchanted because you've been hurt by someone. And that hurt and that pain is real and that offense was wrong, but that doesn't actually mean that you have written off God. It means you've written off that person. And so when it comes to preaching, I say that because uh, much of what I'm trying to do whenever I'm teaching is, is kind of deconstruct the assumptions that are, are made, that are kind of uh, brought in the cultural baggage when it comes to engaging with the Bible and trying to show the Bible's different than what you think it is and then show uh, the deeper story. But, but I'm just really, I'm pretty old school. I'm just trying to stick really close to the text and just show uh, how it might be surprising, giving context so that it comes alive and it makes more sense. But I found that the word does the work. And when you're able to teach the Bible um, and help show that, the, that it's different than what people maybe are expecting, uh, that it really can and still does change lives and change cultures in the same way that it has for thousands of years. Now, you both have done extensive work at the Museum of the Bible. Um, what exactly is it? Yeah, so Museum of the Bible is a relatively new museum that is in Washington, D.C. It opened just two years ago this fall, so it's just hit the, the two-year mark from being open. And it's the third largest museum in Washington, D.C., actually. So it's a, it's a really large museum. It's just a couple blocks away from the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. So it's kind of right there. 
in the heart of DC. And the museum's purpose is to invite all people to engage in the Bible. And so it really um, just openly invites, you know, anyone, regardless of background or, you know, thought or worldview to say, hey, come learn about the Bible. And, and they highlight three different ways of engaging the Bible. First, they talk about the history of the Bible. So kind of answering the question, how did we get this book that we hold in our hands today? So kind of the history through time of the Bible being translated and passed down through the generations. And then secondly, it talks about the impact of the Bible. So the Bible has impacted our world in so many ways that the average person might not even realize all the ways that the Bible has impacted their own world and their culture and, and the things that they interact with every day. So we try and highlight, you know, what's the Bible's impact been in government and in music? Um, music is particularly well, relevant right now. If you've heard of the new Kanye West album, Jesus is King. So, you know, there's, there's different ways the Bible have impacted various uh, genres within our culture. So we highlight a lot of different ways that it has. So it just kind of gives perspective on, on the Bible's influence. And then three, the third one is that the, the museum highlights the narrative or the story of the Bible, showing kind of this is a high level overview of what the Bible is teaching and is about. So Old Testament and New Testament, we have different sections to kind of be able to explore each one and give a high-level overview. So it's um, really engaging and fun. Every floor has a kind of different vibe so that you feel like you're in a completely different museum when you go from one floor to the next. And so it's, there's a lot of technology incorporated. So it's been really fun to get to see people walk through the museum and just see the impact of God's word and the Bible and be excited to engage in the Bible, um, maybe in new ways that they hadn't before. Why Washington, D.C., of all places? Yeah, so that's good. a good question. Yeah, go for it, Michael. <laughs> so D.C., uh, we had a economic impact study done uh, prior to the kind of founding and opening of the museum where we were trying to find out where would, would a museum like this be well attended and where would it be best attended? And so um, a few cities on the map, New York, Dallas, um, ultimately there was an overwhelming response that people were interested in a museum that was dedicated to the Bible uh, and that the place people would be most likely to um, visit such a museum would be Washington, D.C., which really when we step back and thought about it, shouldn't be a large surprise and that that is where most of the um, – uh, museums, largest museums uh, in the country are visited is in Washington, D.C. Uh, every year, it's the Air and Space Museum or the Natural History Museum. One of those two Smithsonian's in Washington, D.C. Uh, is the most attended museum in the country. So uh, being there among those elite museums and having a space that there's some 87 different museums in Washington, D.C. And Museum of the Bible is the third largest in terms of its public display space. And so um, so having a, a major museum right there in the heart of the museum capital of our country, let alone the political capital of our country, uh, just made a lot of sense. And, and the Lord opened a door to, to acquire a property that was just a, a few blocks from the nation's capital. And, and it, it's, the rest has been history. So we're, we're really excited about being there and the impact for generations that will come from that building. I heard the chuckle. Has that question been asked a lot or is there a backstory behind uh, you know, the decision to put it there? That question has been asked a lot, actually. Yeah. And 
And some people might speculate different reasons why, but it, you know, the economic impact study really was a big driver for um, significantly kind of focusing in on DC. But we continued even once the committee was aware of the the impact that it would the the study and the impact would be really good in DC. Um, we continued to look at other cities, but ended up being able to find a property in DC that came available, which was um, which was really great. Yeah. One of the more fascinating features of the museum um, is the slave Bible, which of course was a, a redacted version of the Bible to prevent slaves from reading and encountering texts that lend themselves to freedom and rebellion. What kind of impact have y'all seen of, of this area of the museum having on guests? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a phenomenal piece and, and I, I honestly was on loan. And so today uh, it's actually back with its, owner for a time. Hopefully it'll be back soon, but we had a full display and actually uh, the story, let me tell quickly the backstory of how it came to be because it's crazy. So the, um, we release every day, the museum of the Bible, um, social tags have an artifact of the day. So if you follow museum of the Bible on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, every day we're putting out a different artifact and kind of sharing why it's meaningful. And, uh, those get good response. Um, but as you can tell with any daily post, it kind of fluctuates a little bit. Well, it spiked when we shared about the slave Bible, uh, absolutely through the roof, very organic, uh, massive reach. And we kind of realized, man, there's a great story here that we're not telling that most people don't know about. And so built out an entire exhibit that just kind of tells the story of this Bible that we don't know much about, but was printed in 1808 in England. Uh, and it says that it was uh, printed for the Negro slaves in the uh, Caribbean or something like that. And so they then exported those Bibles uh, to those people and they took out something like two thirds of the Old Testament and half of the New Testament uh, is just missing. Uh, it was highly edited. And especially they were looking at any chapters or verses clearly that have to do with freedom um, were removed. So for instance, Genesis uh, goes up till the story of Joseph and then stops, cuts off uh, at Genesis 35 or whatever it is. And and that's because Joseph is a story of a man who was enslaved that escaped and found freedom. Uh, the book of Exodus is completely gone, except for the chapter where the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law, <laughs> comes. And so uh, you can see kind of how, I mean, you just kind of project that out over the rest of the scripture and you can see how you would have a warped understanding of the message of the Bible uh, if you only have half of the story, right? If you only had the the verses about God's justice and his power and his judgment, but you don't have the verses about his love, his grace, and his mercy, uh, for instance, you can understand how your view of God would be warped. And so it's been really neat because in that exhibit, we've had a some space to tell the story of the slave Bible and then kind of ask people to share with us their response, what they think um, about it. And uh, and so people have written down just incredible responses, honest, raw, authentic, uh, just emotion and thoughts and feelings and uh, reflections on the slave Bible that we hope, my hope is, as a pastor, is that it would point people to the power of God's word and the, again, kind of what I mentioned earlier, the threat of if you only understand a portion of the story, if you only have kind of half the truth, then you really haven't seeing the truth for yourself. You know, Jesus himself said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall set you free. Uh, that verse, by the way, obviously not in 
the slave Bible. Uh, that's only true if you have the entire truth, not just a portion of it. And so the slave Bible is really a powerful exhibit, and, uh, and we've seen a lot of response from people uh, that have been affected both in uh, reflecting on the people that printed the Bible and then as well recognizing how that influences the way that they understand the Bible for knowing the whole story. Well, I'm sure you're fully aware people have opinions about everything nowadays. So, um, you know, uh, something like this typically kind of um, raises conversation. So I wonder how, as y'all have been living into, uh, you know, the mission and vision of um, this museum, how, how has the dialogue around it helped help shape what you do and, and how y'all approach, um, I guess, the living mission of this Bible museum? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And um, in uh, we the, the Museum of the Bible itself, I mean, just speaking, um, I guess as an employee, but really just as someone that's around it, I can speak probably more authoritatively than um, I'm not in a position, I'm not a C-suite, I'm not in the position of the highest levels of leadership. Um, but I can tell you, it, those people would say that we, we've, we've made uh, a lot of mistakes. Uh, we've done a lot of great things. And so we, we've received some due criticism, uh, both from people of faith and people of no faith uh, that are kind of holding us accountable rightly to live out what our mission is, which is we say that we exist to invite all people to engage with the Bible. So it doesn't matter uh, your uh, background, whether your socioeconomic background, whether your religious background, whatever, uh, we kind of just wave the banner of trying to get people to engage with it. Sometimes I use the analogy of uh, like snorkeling, right? That there are, are depths that you can see when you snorkel in the ocean. And uh, we are at the museum just trying to get people into the water to look down and say, look at all this that exists down here. You should come explore. And we're not trying to tell people what they should believe about every single thing or, or anything like that. We're just trying to get people to read the book itself. Um, we see all the polls, Barna, Pew, Lifeway, et cetera, that uh, Bible engagement, Bible reading is on the decline. And we want to see that turned around. And we want to do that in a way that invites um, everyone, regardless of your faith background, to do that together in a way that's not threatening, that isn't um, uh kind of biased and as much as possible, you know, that you, that we want to present the story as what the Bible itself claims to be. So that's kind of, uh, from, from my experience, the, the, the way that we've tried to live that out and, and the criticism that we received and the praise that we've received, I think has helped to do that. But like any, any organization with any mission, you know, you can only really believe half the good things people say about you and about half the criticisms that people give you. And so uh, it's definitely shaped the museum a lot. And it's certainly shaped us um, in that some of those undue criticisms have reminded me uh, in my own walk with the Lord that when there's brothers or sisters in Christ that I disagree with to give them grace because it's easy to assume the worst or assume kind of uh, to become cynical, especially in a, a cynical age, a cynical culture that we live in. Um, and then on the flip side, to to not be naive to the praises, you know, to not be um, uh, only focused on the criticisms uh, as a means of trying to answer your critics, but just recognize some people aren't going to like you and, and to really um, not, not live for the praise of man, but live for ultimately the... the 
This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Look out. Um, uh, not what you think, why the Bible might be um, not what we expect, yet everything we need. Um, you wrote, in, but in the midst of the legitimate uncertainty of the Bible, we have discovered it to be a dazzling oasis of beauty and wisdom. I wonder if you might walk us through the conception of this book. Yeah, so, you know, Michael and I, both, we both talked about our uh, opportunities to work with the museum in and around it. And so part of the reason that this book came about was from the experiences that we both had getting to have conversations about engaging in the Bible. So while we were working for the Museum of the Bible, we had a season before the museum opened where we were getting to travel and kind of just share the vision, um, speak with different groups about the museum to, to let them know about this museum that was about to open and raise awareness. And so in that, we got to have a lot of different conversations with uh, both people in our own generation, millennials, um, as well as those a generation uh, or, or two above us who would ask us questions about kind of how it is that we still care about the Bible as millennials, because um, they maybe knew someone that was a millennial, either a, a relative, a granddaughter, a grandchild, or a son or daughter, uh, or even just a friend who was a millennial and had walked away from wanting to have anything to do with scripture. And so through those conversations, we, we kind of just recognize the um, uniqueness in our own generation of uh, biblical illiteracy and having kind of pushed this book aside, as well as then seeing the research um, that Michael has mentioned, you know, Pew and, and Barna and all these that show millennials are the least Bible-engaged generation in, uh, in America since they've started researching this. Um, and then Gen Z seems to be even less engaged, but you know, Gen Z, you know, they're still growing up. They're, you know, teens and even younger right now. So through our own experience of getting to talk about this mission of wanting people to engage in the Bible, and then through that coming to understand with better clarity the lack of engagement of our own generation, we just grew um, a desire for wanting to look at that from all the angles and perspectives and say, you know, what is it about our generation's experience, um, our generation's um, kind of what we've grown up with that has impacted the way we view this book, the Bible, and, and wanted to tackle that and wanted to have the opportunity as millennials to write to our own generation because I think a lot of millennials have read books about our generation that were written by older generations and have often been critical of millennials. You know, millennials have tended to get a bad rap. And if you look at kind of 
like what the perception of millennials is from older generations. It's a lot of negative things, and we, we talk about that. But we wanted to um, be a voice from our own generation with empathy for, for those that um, are in our generation and just kind of look at the question honestly and also share honestly the own, our own wrestling with the Bible and, and hopefully allow that to, to kind of bring a new perspective and bring light to this most significant book of all, of all time, the Bible. Yeah, I've always found it fascinating that the generations before us criticize the next generation because it's like they forget when they were younger, they were criticized by the generation that was older than them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we, we can't mm-hmm. decide like when we get older, hey, we're going to have some perspective. But instead, like, no, we just <laughs> right. on that. Our, our eyes, you know, narrow down and we, we just can't help but to think, you know, that the millennials, of, you know, and y'all are very, um, very praiseworthy of, of our generation. I fit in the same generational gap as, as y'all. And, um, you know, you've written that, um, Millennials are immense and informed and um, impatient and, and impassioned mm-hmm. and integrated. Uh, but you also talked about this that this generation struggles with the meaning of truth. You wrote, Each and every yeah. one of us has this need for truth, despite what many in our culture believe and insist. We need reality, provable facts, and consistent behaviors to ground us. Take us a little deeper into what you feel like our culture is saying about truth and, and on the flip side, what you believe truth to be? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really core to, um, to a lot of what we're writing about. And I hope is helpful to um, pastors and ministry leaders or parents of millennials that are kind of um, uh, maybe disenchanted. We're we're honest in the book about some of the um, uh, shortcomings of our generation, but we are optimistic um, that uh, there are some, great redemptive things about our generation. And um, I, I do, by the way, kind of laugh like, like you do about the, the fact that every generation kind of uh, scoffs at the one just beneath them. Uh, because like one of the things that a classic like millennial critique is that everyone received a participation trophy. And I always want to say like, yeah, but who gave us those? Like we weren't going <laughs> to the trophy shop, you know, buying, like you chose to do that to us. So yeah, you don't like our generation. Who made us the way we are? You know, it was boomers and Xers. So anyway, um, but it's it's a great question about truth because this is what I was going to say. So much of the issues that millennials and Gen Z has is not exclusive with Christianity. It has implications for Christianity, but there's a a questioning of what truth is, and there's a questioning of whether or not uh, we should recognize authority. Well, that goes directly to the Bible, that goes directly to the church, that goes to teaching uh, and, and discipleship and, and all of these areas, but it's not, those things often are not personal to the church. It's just in general, uh, you can live out your own truth, right? And so if something is true for you, then it's true for you, and you kind of get to define what's true based on your experience and kind of what quote-unquote works for you. Well, that doesn't work with the Bible. I mean, the Bible doesn't give us that option, that reality. And so often that is seen as being narrow um, and not being open-minded, etc. And one of the things we want to say in this book is if millennials are the open-minded generation that we claim to be, then being open-minded means engaging with the Bible and reading it to consider 
whether or not this is ultimate truth and not just to immediately reject it as being uh, too narrow, but to at least give the Bible a chance to rise or fall in its own merits, not based on the kind of preconceived cultural expectations that we put on the Bible, um, which is goes to the heart of why we uh, chose that subtitle that we did, you know, that why the Bible is nothing we expected, yet everything we need, that the Bible might not be what you expected. It doesn't allow you to kind of have this buffet style of wise sayings that you can take the things you like and leave the things you don't and see what spiritually kind of jives with you. It, it's it's much more exclusive and makes, you know, kind of jarring claims at times. And yet what we believe you find when you engage with the Bible, the way that the Bible calls to be engaged for is that it's everything that you are searching for in the first place. I think, you know, I would argue that one of the ways that the institutional church is struggling today is a, is a bitter grasping at lost authority within people's lives. I mean, people are not less spiritual than a generation before. In fact, studies have found that people are actually more spiritually open than any other generation before them. It's just the mm-hmm. fact that people are less institutionally religious. And, and with such a shift in people's perspective, the institutional churches loses the control of authority of interpretation. And this is, uh, these circumstances are so similar to a period in history we now call the Protestant Reformation. Um, so could it be that the non-religious and highly spiritually minded people, namely millennials, are looking for a new tradition, a new a trustworthy and more inclusive institution to allow them to wrestle with the difficult questions about life and God and faith and scripture and authority? And could it be that the church in its attempt to maintain control and authority has, has tightened its grip so hard and closed the door in millennials' faces you know, as some articles have come out this week saying, hey, millennials are leaving and they're not coming back. Do you think it's time for the church to rethink the way that it's been approaching maybe its interpretation and its application of scripture, or maybe its lack of openness to allow people, as we've talked about before, to, to deconstruct um, their religious systems and their life and reconstruct it into something healthier and maybe more authentic and close to the nature of God seen in scripture? I definitely would um, uh, agree that the church needs to constantly be reforming, right? Like that, that was kind of the cry of the Protestant Reformation, that um, the, the, the counter argument from the, the Catholic Church was the Roman Catholic Church said, if you divide from us now, you'll never stop dividing. And they were right. There's however many, you know, like thousands of denominations um, but the kind of response from the Protestants was that we are always reforming, like we're always and we're not always reforming because we're adapting to culture, but we are considering the eternal claims of Scripture and saying, how does this uh, uh, manifest itself in this culture? So I, in, in a sense, I, I agree with that aspect. I disagree with the aspect that um, I, I don't I personally don't believe that it's a problem of 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 needing to change maybe the way that we're like giving space to relating to spirituality or things like that. I think it's that the church is not currently holding to um, the doctrines that they've claimed to hold to. And so they're, they're rightly kind of, we're painted as hypocrites and rather than in some ways owning that and saying, of course we're hypocrites, we're sinners that are in desperate need of the cross. uh, We kind of resist and push back against that. And so 
part of what we're trying to do and not what you think is just be honest about the failures and shortcomings of the church. And I think um, if you look across history, when revival has come, it has started with the humbling of the church to confessing our own shortcomings and sins um, and in prayer to just say, man, we need to turn back uh, to our, our lost faith in Christ, not in, I agree with what you were saying, the sort of institutional authority of the church or the moral authority of the church for American culture, but rather than saying, hey, American church, rather than being so interested in uh, how America um, on a grand scale is living morally, we need to be much more interested in how are we living up to God's law in our own personal holiness morally when it comes to inside the church and allow that to then transform the culture through the lives of individual Christians rather than kind of mandating that our culture around us look and act like the church of Jesus when they don't truly know Jesus. Um, last thing I'll say is I, I think what we're seeing today in the exodus of millennials, again, I don't think that that's millennials who have come to a, a, a true like faith where they are grounded on Jesus. I think They've been grow they've grown up in church because their parents took them to church because they wanted them to be good people. And they've not actually encountered the gospel. They've not encountered Jesus who radically wrecks your life to say uh, he's not satisfied with just a Sunday attendance. And then you, you kind of checked off your, your spiritual duty for the week, but he demands your entire life. I, I don't think that's the message that most millennials have heard on Sundays. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, look, there's plenty of uh, reformers um, and people of the Inquisition that would say we would have loved to not burn at the stake with the fact that, um, you know, the church had maybe come to the conclusion that we had gotten some things wrong here or there. But, uh, you know, that is a kind of a challenge for many churches today. It's, it's kind of like we talk about the generational gap and the issues that each generation has with their own is that we have to recognize that something we've done as a church is causing a good portion of people not to come back when they go off to college. You know, this uh, consumeristic model of the church that we've been producing the last 50 to 60 years, while it's wonderful when people are the recipients of the programs and the events that so feed their soul, it maybe is not establishing within them a deep foundation of understanding of the invitation of Christ that we thought it was. Um, and so rethinking how we engage people matters. And, and, and I love in the later stages of the book, you, you, you give shape to what you believe the message of the Bible to be. You wrote, when well-meaning people today in the name of the book tout their own behavior to claim a moral high ground, they're actually undermining their arguments. We naturally read ourselves into any story as a hero, but the Bible with unexpected ruthless consistency reminds us that we are the problem. Take us a little deeper there. Yeah, one of the things that we continue to point out throughout our book, not what you think, is just that Jesus is the kind of what every part of the Bible is pointing to. And growing up, you know, we may have heard different Bible stories and we kind of place ourselves in in the kind of hero or character of the Bible uh, story that we've heard. So, you know, if it's the story of David and Goliath and, you know, the message maybe is, you know, you're David and with God, you can take down Goliath. When, when really we're, we're trying to say everything in scripture is pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the, the true and better David. Um, he is the one that we, uh, 
are able to know because of Christ and what he's done, we are able to know God and have relationship with him. And we were the problem um, and, and try and kind of bring that to the forefront um, so that as we approach scripture and as we are reading and as people hopefully will be encouraged to engage in the Bible from, from reading our book, they will have kind of that perspective of looking at Christ as kind of the center of what the Bible is pointing to. As you, as you think about the, I mean, the dense work y'all put into producing this book, um, the research and the writing, what changed for you about the Bible in this process? For me, one of the things that in the process of writing this book, I continued to wrestle with was my own Bible engagement. Um, if I am writing a book encouraging others to be engaging in the scripture and, and trying to get some clarity for the message and, and finding Christ in, in what we're reading and all these things, it, it, cha- it continually challenged me that if I'm writing these uh, things. I have to be engaging in God's word myself and have, you know, always had ebbs and flows in, in the degree of Bible engagement in my own life. But um, it was a renewed uh, reminder for me of uh, the importance for myself to be living out these claims so that, uh, you know, we talk in the book too about kind of hypocrisy and, and how that has affected those that have chosen to kind of push the Bible aside because of the hypocritical way they've seen people living this out. And so we, as we engage in the Bible, we, we have to also be looking to how are we applying this? How are we dying to self in order to live that out? And I, this is a constant, a daily battle. And so I, it was, it was just for me a reminder to not allow myself to have the pride or arrogance to think like I have this figured out. I've written a book on engaging the Bible. So, you know, I've, I, I've got this down, but it's a reminder of, no, I, I daily need this. Um, and, and that was one of the things that I think in my, in the writing process, that was something I walked away with personally uh, from the, from the writing. What's your greatest hope for the book? I think, I think my hope is for a Bible revival. I mean, I, my hope and prayer would be that, um, greatest hope and prayer would be that we would see a a renewed turning to scripture and and there's a lot uh, obviously of of initiatives and projects and books and people that are working towards that but in my mind hope for revival in the church is going to come at least in part through a renewed understanding of turning to the scriptures and exploring the scriptures for yourself um, that's happened in the 16th century in Europe that's what happened in the 18th century in America, uh, and and if it's going to happen in the 21st century, it's going to begin with Christians humbling themselves, engaging with uh, uh, friends, people that are not like them, and it, it's going to be with the church looking to the next generation, asking how do we speak their language in such a way that we help them understand the timeless message of the gospel and apply it to their life today. And so that that'd be my prayer, is that it would change and shape the way that people view the Bible to understand there is a right way and a wrong way to engage the Bible. Jesus himself gave it to us. I mean, he told us in John five rebuked Pharisees who are experts in the Bible, uh, that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's the scriptures that point to me that Jesus himself showed us that 
we're to understand all of scripture in light of what Christ has done on the cross. That story that Lauren talked about that, uh, yeah, that when we, when we wrote that portion of kind of reading ourselves into the Bible story, that we tend to do that from the hero, but I'll give Andy Minio is, uh, gave us a, uh, an endorsement on the back of, of our book and, and the, um, the line that he had that was sort of in my head at that time was he said, when have you ever heard a story about the hero dying for the villain? And that's the story of the gospel is that the hero, Jesus, died for us and uh, that we weren't, you know, co-heroes with him, but that we were the problem. We were the villain. And, um, and so I just want desperately for the next generation to our generation to understand that that is the message of the Bible, that it's not a message that you're to live a moral life. And if you're a moral life, that God will accept you. That's what most people who don't engage with the Bible believe it to mean, uh, which is why they don't engage with it. They're afraid they're going to just read an ethics textbook and feel bad about themselves. Where in the Bible is a story that points to our inability to live up to the life that we were designed to live and found that we only find our true life by identifying with the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's my hope for the book. Yeah, I was going to think you were to say, you know, like sell like 10,000 copies, but you like you had to set the bar so high there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, for those that want to stay connected with Michael and Lauren, visit their respective websites, laurenamcafee.com and michaelmcafee.com. You can follow them on social media. Of course, go out and purchase Not What You Think, wherever books are sold. Michael and Lauren, thank you for an engaging conversation and thank you for your good work and compassion for our generation and their impact on the world. Thanks for having us. Thanks. God bless. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. This podcast is supported by Living Earth Ceramics. Living Earth Ceramics has been on Etsy, bringing pottery to you for almost 10 years and has over 20 years of pottery experience. The focus is not only creating pieces that help bring lasting memories to your community and your life and your family through pottery, but also the support of charitable donations to organizations in need. Living Earth Ceramics created an amplifier in 2011 to help those with hearing loss, like the owner herself. Other items have included mugs, serving ware, custom plates, and orders for newlyweds and holiday memories, gallery items, and custom requests for communal pieces to religious organizations. Living Earth Ceramics Shop on Etsy offers 10% discount to orders using the coupon code CBF Conversations. That's one word, CBF Conversations, with a free shipping now available to the continental United States. Living Earth Ceramics proudly supports our message of hope and love for all people. For more information, visit etsy.com backslash shop backslash living earth ceramics. Well, that's it. That's our conversation. 
Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites at fuller.edu and healthychurch.org. Check out cbf.net for information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, chaplains, and much more. Oh, and uh, one more thing. I don't think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, but visit cbf.net backslash podcast support for ways that you can contribute to the CBF podcast conversations and get some pretty cool stuff in return.